Okay, so Mark chapter 7, we're going to be starting in verse 31 as we continue walking through the book of Mark. And over the last couple of weeks and in this week, we've noticed there's all kinds of cities that keep being mentioned, and, uh, and many of them are ancient cities that no longer exist. Some of them are cities that, that, that exist to this day. Um, but the region overall that Jesus has covered over the last couple of weeks and then today is surrounding the Sea of Galilee, at one point going all the way to the Mediterranean, at one point going pretty far uh, um, east of the Sea of Galilee, and, and the area covers what is now modern-day Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. Okay, so he's covering a pretty wide area, um, and, and he's taking a pretty wonky route. It's, it's a very, if he's going to Jerusalem, he's essentially taking pretty much the worst path possible. Like he is going this very wide circle around the Sea of Galilee and then he'll like zigzag back over the Sea of Galilee and then he'll go north again. It is the, it is the most inefficient of paths to get to Jerusalem. But Jesus is not, his, his purpose is not first and foremost efficiency but effectiveness, right? So seldom does Jesus do things the quickest way or the easiest way but he is always doing things the most effective way. Because in the kingdom of God, the means matters. And in the kingdom of God, the end does not ever justify the means. Rather, the means determines the end. We are unwise to argue that the path doesn't matter as long as you have the right destination in mind because the path actually determines the destination and the condition that you will be in when you arrive. So for Jesus in particular, and for all of those of us who are in Jesus, the path itself is every bit as important as the destination. So we'll see a little bit of that in here. I'm going to read the passage, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to unpack this together. It says, starting in verse 31 of chapter 7, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven and he sighed and said to him, Aphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is to hold your word in our hands. I pray that you would fill us with the sense of awe that that should inspire in us when we realize the truth of it. Spirit, we ask that you would please open our ears that we would be able to understand what it is that you say. Now you are communicating to us through your word and we ask that you would transform us. Father, we thank you. We get to gather in the name of your Son, empowered by your Spirit. We pray that you would accomplish what only you can possibly accomplish, that you would transform our hearts through your word, that you would transform our lives because of what you have done in us and because of who you are. I'd change our hearts, our homes, and this community 
Allow us to see the miraculous work that only you can do. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So we have this man who is unable to hear and unable to speak. And his friends bring him to Jesus. So we can gather from this that there's a possibility that he's a little unclear about what exactly is going on. Right? They're not able to communicate. American Sign Language does not exist at the time, so communication is probably a little difficult. And, and so he's probably a little unclear about what's happening, and he's physically unable to ask Jesus for help himself. So he has these friends that come alongside him that might not necessarily have, know exactly what's happening either, but they know, they understand better than he does, and they know he needs Jesus. And so they bring him to Jesus and ask him to please heal their friend. And the first thing Jesus does is lead him away from the crowd. And he sets him, he brings him aside to have a one-on-one private interaction with him. And he separates him from everyone else. It says his ears were opened and his tongue was released. And he says, then Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It struck me as odd, as it usually does in the Gospels, that uh, just moments after receiving this extraordinary miracle from Jesus, they refused to obey him. Right? He, w- once they got what they thought they needed from him, then, okay, we're good. Now we don't have to do what he says or listen to his instruction at this point. So I've, I've often heard that this is actually a good thing, right? That they were just so inspired by what Jesus had done for them, they just couldn't help it. So, I mean, that's a great thing, right? Like ultimately it ended with Jesus' name being proclaimed and, and so, you know, it doesn't matter that they completely ignored him and did the opposite of what he said, it was for a good reason, right? They just couldn't help being so excited about him. Except for the fact that Jesus told them not to. He's no way unclear in his instruction, don't tell anyone. Right, right, right. Got it, Jesus. Hey, everybody. Uh, So are we to understand then that they were just so overwhelmed with gratitude and love for Jesus that they blatantly ignored him and completely disobeyed him? I don't think so. I don't think that's actually what's happening here. The end of doing it for Jesus never justifies the means of disobeying Jesus. That is never a win. Every indication up to this point in Mark and as we continue to read Mark, is that the likely reason that they completely ignored him is because in spite of receiving this extraordinary miracle, they still don't have a clue who he is. They know that he is a, a worker of wonders. They know that he is a very profound and skilled teacher. Maybe even potentially they're hoping that he'll be a political leader who will, who will throw off the yoke of Rome that is, that is shackling and enslaving them. The only thing they don't assume that he is, is Lord, or God incarnate, which, quite frankly, out of all of those, is the only title that matters. 
There's lots of good teachers. There's, there's lots of people who do fantastic things, but, but there's only one Lord. So the, the title that they seem confused about is the one that would actually radically transform how they interact with him and how they would respond to him and in his instruction. They don't even seem to notice as they're almost verbatim saying prophecies about him while they're celebrating. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. There's echoes of Isaiah 35 in this that says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Let me start that sentence again. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And they're declaring like, oh, this is crazy. He opens the eyes of the blind and, he, and the ears of the deaf are unstopped. And they, they're, the, this mute guy is singing for joy. And they're, they're missing, they're, they're, they're speaking out the prophecies that were about that, that, that Jesus is the one who was to come. That this is not an accident. He's not just a good teacher. This was not God's change of plan or plan B. Jesus was always plan A from before the beginning. He was the right path towards the right end. They're missing that. So why, why would he tell them, don't tell anybody? Does that seem weird to anybody else? I always thought that was so strange why Jesus would always do this spectacular thing and then say, tell nobody. Because in the world that we exist in, in the world of marketing, it's get yourself in in front of as many people as possible. Gather as many people together as you possibly can because that is how you get marketing success. So in that sense, Jesus is doing everything wrong. He does all of his best stuff when no one else is around. Right? Some of his, his most spectacular and extraordinary healings are when nobody else is there. Right? So we can speculate about why he does that. The scripture doesn't say explicitly, and Jesus told him to tell no one because of A, B, and C. But what we can infer pretty confidently from all of these experiences and from what we see in the rest of the Gospels, at the very least, is that Jesus does not ever use his miracles as a means of drawing a crowd. That is not why he does his miracles, right? He is not not a showman who is saying, gather around everyone, behold, behold my wonders. Behold the deaf man, tell all your friends, I'll be here tomorrow at noon, gather everyone together. That's not why he's doing what he's doing. He is, not, he is not a magician trying to gather a crowd. He is not David Blaine. He is not David Copperfield. In first service, I rattled off far too many names of magicians and realized that like the fifth one in the list, that that's super weird that I knew that many magician names. Um, but so that's a, that's a lesson to all of you. To get the really embarrassing mistakes from Robbie, you need to wake up early. Because <laughs> then I learn my lesson and I try not to repeat it in second service. The point is that that is not what you, those guys, they do the wonder in order to attract attention, in order to draw the crowd. But Jesus is doing the opposite. When he, has the op- when he has the opportunity to do that, he takes the person away so that nobody else can see what's going on. If it were Jesus' intention to draw a crowd, 
Why is he continually taking people away and doing his, his most exciting stuff when nobody can see? Because drawing a crowd was not Jesus' method. That was not his path. He loved the crowd. He had compassion on the crowd, certainly. But he never tried to draw a crowd. He served the crowds because they continued to show up. And so he would teach them and he would feed them and he would serve them. But he actually makes efforts time and time again to escape the crowd. His crazy path around Galilee, zigzagging around, you would think if he was trying to gather a following, what I would do if I were trying to gather a following is take a nice slow arcing path to cover as much ground as I could and and assuming like people will join along the way and by the time they get to Jerusalem, I'll have an army and it'll be amazing. What Jesus does is he goes, ah, there's too many people here. Quick, get in a boat. And he runs across the lake to escape them. Actually, one time he literally runs across the lake. Fun fact. Why? Because he wasn't interested in drawing the crowd. That was not his path. That was not his method. Over and over again, we see him fleeing the crowd. That was was the wrong path. We'll talk more about that actually next week. So we have this great word here, afathah. Be opened. The reason it's translated for us in there is because it was translated in the Greek, because it's not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word. And so Mark, who wrote this for a Greek population who reads and understands Greek, uses the word that Jesus said, but understands no one's going to know what that means. So he translates it for them and for us. Be opened. He opens ears that could not hear. And he opens a mouth that could not speak. Flip one page over. Maybe for you it might even be on the same page. But to, to chapter 8, right in the middle. <clears throat> right in the middle. <clears throat> it says, And they came to Bethsaida, in verse 22. And some people brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. There it is again. And we had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. And his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he said to him, and he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Again, Jesus does this extraordinary miracle for this man and says, don't even go back into town. Go straight home. Otherwise, people might notice you can see all of a sudden. And they might ask some questions. Again, he says, don't, that's not, this is not what I'm trying to attract people to. But here we have the same again, this be open. He opens the eyes of this blind man. And then in Acts, we see another extraordinary opening by God where Paul is is in a city and he finds this group of women gathered together and he begins preaching the gospel to them. And it says in Acts chapter 16, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. 
One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. She was from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, which means she was very wealthy. Who was a worshiper of God, which means she was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after that, she was baptized and her whole household as well. It's the same word in this verse used for open as it is in those other verses. Which actually isn't that important because we would always use the same word for open anytime we open something, right? Point being, you don't need to know Greek to see what's happening here. It's the same thing. Things are being miraculously opened. Okay, God is constantly taking things that are dead and paralyzed and lifeless and bringing breathing life into them to give them light and life and functionality that they did not have before, especially hearts and souls. God is opening all kinds of things all the time. All throughout Scripture, we see He opens the eyes of the blind. He opens prison doors. He opens the door to those who seek Him and knock. He opens the gate for the sheep who recognize His voice. He opens heaven, it says in Scripture. He opens the entrance to the Holy of Holies by tearing the veil in two that separated us from the direct presence of God. He opens tombs so that formerly dead people can walk out on their own two feet. Jesus appears to be in the business of opening. Sin, however, encloses, ensnares, and enslaves. Self-focus encloses and enslaves. Satan enslaves. Culture enslaves. Fear enslaves. Jesus sets free. While people were so amazed by his ability to open ears and open eyes, they did not understand that that is nothing compared to the ability to open hearts, to hear and understand what he is saying in order to experience the abundant life that he was promising. That is a big deal. The fact that he open the door to the throne room of heaven so that the Father could accept unworthy sinners like me and like you into his kingdom. That is a big deal. That is what Jesus wanted people talking about. He wasn't interested in people talking about his signs. He wanted them talking about what his signs were pointing to. They were supposed to be a demonstration of something greater than just them. Right? And in Mark chapter 16, he says to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And whoever does not believe will remain condemned. That is what Jesus wanted people to share. His miracles were simply a demonstration of the truth of that and an affirmation of the fact that it was God's message and an affirmation of God's message that the Father loves and cares for His own. 
Which is why it is alarming and so destructive that there is yet another movement in global missions to stop preaching and stop seeking conversions and move to simply doing acts of kindness and humanitarianism in the hope that people will decide that they want to be nice like me. First of all, Jesus himself is the clearest argument against the methodology of just being a nice enough person, everyone will want to become a Christian. Jesus was the best person ever, and it got him crucified. You're not nicer than Jesus. No offense. I hate to burst your self-confidence, but you are not more awesome than Jesus. And so if Jesus, just by the magnetism of his personality, did not make everyone want to be a Christian, I certainly, and my pitiful absence of charm, am not going to succeed in that. So problem number one, it doesn't work. Problem number two, it doesn't work because it's the wrong path that leads to the wrong end. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life and nobody comes to the Father except through me. So by refusing to give people Jesus is to refuse them entry into the kingdom. It is withholding the only thing that makes you Christian, the gospel. In Galatians 2, Paul says it like this, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Did that sound redundant? Paul's trying to drive that home. Not by works, by faith in Christ, which is why we have faith in Christ, because it can't happen by works, so don't try to do it by works, because it only happens by faith in Christ. So Paul is pleading with the Galatians saying, goodness gracious, don't think, don't tell people if you're just a good enough person, God will just have to accept you because we all know that's not how you are saved, that's not how anybody is saved. Don't, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying don't demonstrate the gospel with acts of kindness and humanitarianism. Preaching the gospel without living and demonstrating the gospel is hypocrisy and it distorts the gospel. So by all means, dig the wells, rescue the trafficked, heal the sick, visit the prisoner, educate the poor, bring a meal to your neighbor when you know they need it, help someone pay their bills when they're not able and you are. Do all of those things by all means because that is what the gospel drives us to do and the type of people that it informs us to be. But as you do so, share the gospel that has made you who you are. Because it is the only thing that has the power to save and transform. Good acts with no gospel makes no one a Christian because there is no Christianity apart from the gospel. You might succeed in somebody thinking that you're a very nice person. You might actually provide comfort to that person. But with no gospel, with no Christ, with no Father opening their heart to pay attention and no Holy Spirit 
applying the work of Christ to their soul, then the best that we have to hope for is to make them as comfortable as possible as we walk them right up the gate to eternal separation from God. There's nothing loving in that. And that has much more to do with how you perceive me than me caring about what happens to you now and beyond time. Church, we need Jesus. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. I need the gospel. It is my only hope in life and in death. That I am not my own, but I belong both body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We need the good news of the gospel, the only thing that has the power to transform us. The gospel that while God created everything with purpose and beauty and he made us in his own image in order to reflect his beauty and his character to people, we rebelled against that. We rebelled against the idea of enjoying God and all of his creation forever because we convinced ourselves that it would be better for us to be the tiny false gods of our own life. We thought we are better at control life, the universe, and everything. And in that traitorous rebellion against our good and glorious and gracious creator, we have separated ourselves from him. And in that traitorous rebellion, we have earned the right and just punishment of the wrath of God. But, that's the bad news, the good news, the gospel, but the heavenly Father being rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast grace and love while we were still rebellious sinners, demonstrated his perfect love for us by sending his son to invade his own creation, God with us, Emmanuel. The word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us in order to live the life that you and I could never live And die the death that we deserve to die as a penalty for our sin and then resurrect from the dead in order to redeem us and renew us and give us the family name and send us out on the family mission and allow us to worship and enjoy him forever. That is good news. If you work hard enough and maybe you'll be as nice as me, it's terrible news. And it saves no one. If you hear that, if you hear the words of the gospel and you feel nothing at all, it stirs no feeling whatsoever. There's no beauty in it. There's nothing lovely in it. There's no joy in it. You don't sense any worth and it feels be like a mist that you can't grab hold of or, or a weight that feels too heavy to be worth trying to carry. Or maybe, maybe it just feels flat offensive to you that you would need to be saved. I would ask you if that's you this morning. I would challenge you to ask God to open your heart to be able to hear the truth of the gospel 
and not just hear it, but that you would be able to breathe in, that he would empower you to breathe in the fullness and loveliness of the life that is only found in the gospel and in surrender to our Jesus. Ask him if he would change your heart, if he would do his miraculous work of opening it for you. And know that even if you don't, if you can't, know that before service and after the service and and during the service, there have been people who have been praying for you. Knowing that there are probably people in this room right now who have ears that simply can't hear yet and mouths that are unable to ask God for that yet. But know that there are people in this church who see you as a friend and are praying that God would touch you the way he touched this man and opened his ears and opened his mouth. That they would do what you were unable to do at this moment so God can do what only God can do in this moment to ignite your heart to see that this gospel is not, as Paul says, to some the stench of death, but it is in fact the aroma of life. If you hear these words, the words of the gospel, the good news of who God is and what he has done and who you are because of him and it resonates in your heart, And do not wait a single moment. Right here and right now, surrender fully to our Jesus. That thing that you feel stirring in the deepest recesses of who you are, that, that, that thing you can't quite put a finger on, it just, it's a tingle or it's a feeling, it's just something in you that says, I think that might be right. That is the Holy Spirit of the living God of the universe pursuing you, opening your heart and drawing you to Jesus. Don't fight that, surrender to that and respond to that. He is awakening your heart and drawing you to the Father and is affirming to you, yes, did you hear that? That is true. It is more true than anything you have ever heard spoken in this life. And it will change everything. Don't wait, don't hesitate. What are you waiting for? Respond immediately. When, when Peter preached the first message after the resurrection and the Holy Spirit indwelt the church, he goes out and he, and he proclaims the gospel and, 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 and the Spirit, or the, the Spirit, well, yeah, it was the Spirit. He's the one who wrote the, the, the Bible. But uh, uh, Luke in Acts records, it says the, the, the people were, were cut to the heart when they heard the gospel. And ask, what do we do? And Peter's response is so simple. Repent and be baptized. Repent, turn from the path that you were on that is leading to the destination of death and, and, and step onto this path and then be welcomed into the church of God and allow him to declare this new identity over you. So if this, in this moment you are feeling, I, I just I have to believe that there are people in this building this morning that the spirit of the living God is working in and has been working in for a while. Whether it's your first Sunday 
in church or whether you've been in church for 50 years. Opening deaf ears and blind eyes is extraordinary. But opening closed hearts, like taking, like taking a stone and, and breathing over it and then watching it soften and blossom like a rose. That's, that's extraordinary. Taking dead and paralyzed hearts and spirits and breathing life into them and opening them up and, and, and rescuing us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of His beloved Son is the extraordinary work of God and the Spirit through Jesus. And He is calling you into that. If this morning you feel that stirring in you, don't wait, don't hesitate. Surrender fully to your Jesus right now. And if, if you feel that, if you are sensing that, just, just thank your heavenly Father. Say, Father, thank you for having mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you, Jesus, for absorbing the penalty that I deserve on my behalf, the penalty that I deserve for my rebellion or my apathy toward you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for regenerating or making new my heart and declaring that it would be opened so that I could find the gospel to be the aroma of life. Thank you, Father, that you would not only save and sustain me, but that you would give us a new identity, not making you less than what you were, but making you immeasurably more. When we die to ourselves and allow Christ to consume us, we don't become less. I become more me than I have ever been because I begin to finally walk in the identity that my creator God gave me in the first place that I distorted with all of my selfishness. I made myself less. But in Christ, we find life abundant. If that's you this morning, as we finish the morning in corporate singing and declaring the truths of who our God is and who we are because of Him, I would just want to encourage you as you stand up, realize you are taking your first step in the kingdom of God's beloved Son and delight and embrace your new identity as His daughter, as His Son. And please tell someone before you leave here. The person next to you, come tell me. Come just grab somebody and share with them, God made me his today. I am, I know now that I am his daughter. I know now that I am his son. I know now that this is my family. And let us celebrate the extraordinary, miraculous work that our God is doing day in and day out in calling his own to himself. Jesus, we, we know it is only in you and through you. And we believe in your word that it is through you that we have our being. It is through you alone 
that we can walk in the true identity that we have been given, that we can be redeemed and reconciled and adopted. We can be rescued and made new. Father, we thank you. We thank you for pursuing us with a relentless love. We thank you for chasing after your rebellious children and doing what you must to draw us home. Father, we want so badly. And for those of us that don't, I pray you would give us a desire (laughs) to see you changing and transforming and renewing the hearts of our neighbors and this community and the world. It is all from you. It is all for you. And it's all to your glory. Amen.